Good morning. My name is Ava Epstein, and I am a freshman at the University of Florida. Our scripture passage today comes from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with the 21st verse. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their own life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ava. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you have read the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? <laughs> well, the popular relationship, relationship self-help book by Dr. John Gray contains a lot of helpful information on understanding the differences between men and women that make couples clash at times. I've read this book a long time ago, but there's one very memorable part for me that I still appreciate and very much dislike. Men are fixers. Men are solution-driven. Men, raise your hand if you identify with this. First, let me say how incredible you are at it. And I say this with all my respect and adm admiration for your immense talent. You are gifted at resolving anything. It is like you were placed on earth with the purpose of improving all that comes our way. You may have heard that us women are a bit different. When us women come to you with a complaint about something in general, your brain lights up and you go straight to work. You hear our problem and you also hear somehow that you have been put in charge of resolving the issue. And you are about to show us your incredible skills at problem solving. So you design a plan, you create an Excel sheet, you provide us with a chart with solutions to our problem that includes risk factors and probabilities of success. You hand us a 34-page document that states the problem, that lists the parties involved, and that gives us estimates and timetables. It typically includes an average of five tangible solutions for the problem, each of them carefully analyzed with data and history on the possible outcome. There, honey, 
I fixed your problem. And it all comes crashing down when we say to you that we don't need a solution. We just want to be heard and be told, I'm sorry you're not feeling good about what's going on at work, sweetie. Let me give you a hug. I'm married to an electrical engineer who produces hundreds of pages long documents on circuit boards for the black boxes on airplanes. Let me tell you that whether it's about the communication from the black box to a satellite or whether it's about a conflict I just had with a friend that makes me sad, there are solutions to everything. It is a remarkable gift, one that we sometimes just don't want to receive. Jesus' harsh answer to Peter reminds me a bit of myself when I really don't want a solution, but just want to be heard and supported. I hope I choose softer words as I don't typically call anyone Satan in my replies. Peter is a fixer. He's an optimist. He makes himself available to make things better for Jesus. I imagine that he sees how effective Jesus is in saving people from diseases and death, how he feeds the crowd, and how he's much more valuable alive than dead. Let me fix this, Peter says. Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh says this, it is not impermanence that makes us suffer. What makes us suffer is wanting things to be permanent when they are not. Jesus on earth was not going to be permanent. It's a divine thing. It's not a human thing. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was previously tempted by the devil in the wilderness to use his divine power to rule the earth, to save himself. Perhaps Jesus hears the devil speaking again through the mouth of Peter, prompting him to call his friend and disciple Satan. There's no saving. The cross is part of the large plan. Peter simply forgets to hear the part where Jesus will be raised from the dead. He focuses strictly on the suffering and death that is to come. I loved reading Eugene Peterson's transliteration of this passage in the message. It reads, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. One thing that I've learned in the many pastoral care classes that I have taken, especially those relating to visiting patients in the hospital, is that it is important not to give false hope. When someone is given a terminal diagnosis, my job is not to say, You've got this. You'll beat it. You're strong. These words always want to escape my mouth because I want to see people live. I want to see them survive. I want them to have a miracle story to tell. Well, a music friend of mine was in the hospital once more. She had been in the hospital time and time again, always with such a positive attitude despite having incredibly difficult challenges with doctors removing physical part of her every time she went in, and her having to relearn to live in a body that was becoming less and less. 
but her mind was always so determined to get through it. When I visited her in her latest hospitalization, after many visits in the last few years, I felt a shift in her. There was one more body part of hers that had to be removed for her to live. The proposed surgery would surely get her going some more. She'd relearn to function with, yet again, one less piece of herself. But on this visit, pre-surgery, where she had overcome a couple of other things that were off before she could go under, she was just not the same. And it was one day when I felt the Holy Spirit's presence in that hospital room, one that I will always remember. She said to me in a voice that made me think that she was almost ashamed of herself because she had been so positive in the past. She said, I think I'm tired. Now I love this friend. She was always my inspiration. I complain so loudly when I stub my toe or if I sleep wrong and my neck is sore in the morning. I'm just not someone who likes going to the doctor. I can pass out at blood draws. I'm that weak. I'd often think of her and all the doctor stuff that she had to endure, and that helped me get through my tiny, ridiculous discomforts. So when she expressed that she was tired, a big part of my being wanted to shake her out of it, to dismiss what she said because she could have said it just because of the medication she was on or something like that. But I felt her tiredness in my own core. I knew her enough to know that it was hard for her to admit this, but it was important for, say, for her to say it out loud. So instead of being her cheerleader, instead of pushing her to keep going, instead of saying that it was just going to be one more procedure, she'd get through it like she always did. I simply said, it's okay to be tired. I prayed with her and her daughter, who was present as well. And she was gone in a couple of days. And despite me missing her deeply, I know it was a divine thing. It was not a human thing. We want to put a band-aid on suffering. We, we who bring the good news of the gospel to the world always want to bring hope, to fix everything, to put on our Christian rose colored glasses. Just like Peter, we want to fix the difficult parts of life. We want to shove the suffering away and find permanence in what works well. So the first part of the passage gives us a glimpse at a Jesus who's maybe a little less patient and a Jesus who's starting to share that suffering is near. I can understand Peter's reaction at Jesus' announcement of death to come, and I can also understand Jesus' response to Peter. But then comes the difficult part. It is difficult because it sounds like an invitation into suffering alongside Jesus. It's difficult because I can picture Jesus turning around and facing me and addressing me personally. Jesus says... If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Honestly, I find this to be a hard statement to talk about. 
I'm still a fairly green preacher, one that wants to bring you good news and good ways to apply the gospel in your life and mine. And after all, this sentence doesn't scream, hey, come join Team Jesus. It's going to be great. Will I have fully picked up my cross when I have sold all my possessions? Do I need to stop indulging in the goodness of the modern world? Do I need to spend all my money on the poor and forget about a retirement plan? Where does picking up our cross begin and where does it end? I think it's safe to say that we'll never be perfect, we'll never be doing enough. But following Jesus to the cross means that it is a path that we take by choice. We choose suffering and sacrifice and it is not the suffering that chooses us. So how do we reconcile ourselves with this statement? Because guess what? It applies to all of us here in this room who have said yes to Jesus. And when we invite others in the life of Jesus, we invite them to carry a cross as well. I'm thinking that if there's a visitor here today who's considering becoming a Christian, that person is probably hearing these words and thinking, great, more suffering. I already have two jobs, my car insurance went up again, my mother-in-law is making my life crazy, the kids are driving me nuts, the list of school supplies is burning a hole through my pockets. I just want to show up here and get a little hope, but what am I getting is that I'll be suffering even more. Wait, if you're a visitor, don't leave yet. <laughs> no, the church won't lower your expenses. Suffering exists everywhere. It exists in hunger, it exists in grief, in illness, in school shootings, in poverty, in injustice. That's the human part of suffering that we're all facing, believer or unbeliever. But picking up our cross to follow Jesus means that we know that with the little suffering, there's also the great promise of resurrection. There is that little part that Peter forgot to hear. And this divine reward is not only given in the kingdom eternal, it, this reward of heaven is also felt right here on earth. When we pick up our cross to follow Christ, we actually make the conscious choice of facing suffering rather than suffering, than receiving the suffering with no hope in sight. And the beauty of suffering when we are Christians is that we have a community to face it with. Because we choose to follow in the path of Jesus who taught us about unconditional love, we may willingly suffer from small inconveniences to large sacrifices up to us, really. And we get to lighten the weight of the cross of others. When a friend who just had her third child is going through an unexpected separation and we see her struggling to just wake up in the morning, when we see her completely exhausted, not sleeping, out of patience, what do we do? We cancel our plans. We pick up the heavy weight she carries. We watch her kids for an afternoon. We send her a meal card or pay for a babysitter so she can breathe a little. We listen to her when she needs to talk and we pray with her. We pick up our cross when we open the door to the good friend of our teenager 
because that teenager friend just came out as trans to her parents, and that teen's parents said, we won't have this here. You need to get out of our house. What do we do? We open that door because the 17-year-old has nowhere to go. This happened to parents I know recently, and I was in awe at the generosity of these two who surrounded this young person who was going through a lot of turmoil. No matter what the temporary hosts felt about the issue, they could not let their daughter's friend be homeless. With several mouths to feed themselves, they suddenly had another person to feed, to take to school, to bring to after-school activities. Saying no to adding another person to their household would have been so easy. And saying yes was a big sacrifice. But eventually, the parents of that teen softened up, the tension came down, forgiveness and acceptance are on their way, and the family is now reunited and working through their differences. Without the sacrifice of these friends of mine who went out of their way, and despite, even despite their own beliefs, this teen could have never, could have ended up on the street and given hope, given up hope on the, on being loved. She would have given up hope of being loved. The suffering of others may add weight on our own cross, but then we remember so well that Jesus' cross was much heavier, and he lightens up our load. When the green preacher fails to find the right words to explain a harder passage, she can always turn to the words of an old hymn by Isaac Watts that says it all. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that for a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. Let us pray. Precious Lord, to whom we owe all our life, we surrender today to you and face your cross with wonder and awe. We surrender to you and look at the great reward of resurrection that is to come. May your presence in our life be felt in such a way that we will not only pick up our cross, but also pick up our pace in walking toward you, O Holy Savior of all nations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.